Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com. Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at verdantearthseducators.com. This podcast is being recorded on August 18th, 2023. Kim Shear is the Curator of Living Collections and Management of the Hearth Charitable Trust New Plant Development Program at the Morton Arboretum. In her role as curator, Kim focuses on the development and maintenance of resilient living collections that provide a germplasm resource for researchers and plant breeders seeking to address the issues of climate change, while also working with the conservation community to identify priorities that can be addressed through collections, curation, and research. As manager of new plant development, Kim works with plant breeders and nursery industry to select, evaluate, and develop new plants for the urban and suburban built landscapes. Kim completed her Bachelor of Science degrees in Horticulture Science and Plant Biology at North Carolina State University and her Master of Science degree in Horticulture Science with a focus in plant breeding and genetics at Oregon State University. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Kim. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's totally my pleasure, and I'm glad I ran into you at the the Woody Plant Conference. Yes, for those of you who don't know, we have a wonderful Woody Plant Conference here in southeastern Pennsylvania, and we get to meet all kinds of wonderful speakers when they come to to the conference. So Kim was one of the guests this past July, and we're thrilled that you could be here. So Kim... It was great to hear your talk in last month at the Swarthmore campus. And uh, I think Eva and I were both inspired to chase you down and invite you on the podcast. And we always like to start out just to hear a little bit about who you are and where you came from and how you found your way to the work you do at the Morton Arboretum. Yeah, so that is uh, definitely a long and circuitous story, right? <laughs> Go for it. We have time. I didn't actually know about horticulture, right? Or like that it was a thing. Of course, I think that's probably a very common thread amongst a lot of folks who are in the horticulture plant world. So it it wasn't until I was maybe almost 30 before I went back to school. I took about 10 years off of, of school after graduating high school uh, to figure out what I wanted to do. Probably a few stories there. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of stories there. But, you know, I was, it was 2009 and it was after my mother had passed away and I had already decided I wanted to go back to school, right? I just didn't know exactly what I wanted to study. And so when I thought about what I really enjoyed learning about, I thought, you know, I really always enjoyed learning about plants. My mother had always taken me out to garden centers 
And that's what I grew up doing. She would drag me to garden centers <laughs> and I would have to weed the lawn. You know, that was like my chore. So I kind of grew up in this environment, moving around a lot. My father was in the army and uh, we moved around quite a bit around the country as well as, you know, overseas. And the one kind of constant in my life was plants. Um, there was always house plants around. There was always the forest to go explore. Even if I didn't know what the plants were in the forest, it was still fun to explore them. And then when we came back to North Carolina, there was a garden, you know, that my mom was always cultivating. I think I was probably also in a moment of trying to figure out what to do in that grief with my mother. And so I thought, you know, hey, maybe I should consider, you know, looking at plants. So I went to NC State back to NC State. And I said, I'd like to come back to school. So they worked with me to get that done. And I was like, well, plant biology has the word plant in it. <laughs> so that must be the right path. And so I did that. I majored in plant biology and I looked at the requirements to take a plant class. And it was like, you know, two semesters worth of, or two years or something ridiculous worth of prerequisites you know, just to take a plant biology class. And I was like, well, that's great, but I need to learn about plants in the meantime. So I started by taking an intro to horticulture class with uh, Bryce Lane at NC State University. And it was really non-majors. And it's about, I think it was a, maybe a classroom of about a hundred people where you go and like, you're all non-majors. And then this person gets up there in front of you and is so enthusiastic and passionate and informative about this world of horticulture that it's kind of hard to not get hooked. <laughs> but, you know, and I got hooked. And also I realized like, this is actually what I want to do. Like I want to be out working with plants, touching them, doing something applied in a way where people and plants are connected. And so that's kind of how I started with horticulture. With plant breeding, it was interesting. I was, it was again, sitting in Bryce Lane's class. So I feel like this, I feel like my career path has kind of highlighted uh, the importance and significance of mentorship and like realizing like every time you go into a classroom or go in front of a group of people, an audience, that there's someone out there that you might actually engage that might, you know, change the trajectory of their whole like life path, right? So I always try to keep that in mind. But with Bryce, I was sitting in his class one day and he came in with this potted plant. It was like in a little, maybe like one gallon container. It looked like a stick because it was dormant still. And he was just so excited about it because he just received it from his friend across the hall, Dr. Dennis Warner, Danny Warner, the breeder. And it was one of the first available Ruby Falls Eastern Redbuds, right? And it was a huge breakthrough in the Redbud world because you had this weeping form with red leaves. And I, at the time, didn't even know what an Eastern Redbud was. <laughs> You know, he's like, who knows what an Eastern red bud is? Raise your hand. I was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and so he's describing it. He's like, yeah, it's got pink flowers in the spring. It's one of the first things that blooms. And he's like, you know, using his hands to describe what its form is because he was very like active up there in front of us and gesticulating. And it's like, you know, and I do the same thing. Like it's kind of more uh, broadly spreading vase shape, right? Or um, habit kind of um, in the forest. But then this one was weeping. And it usually has green leaves, but this one had red leaves. And I thought, you know, sitting in that classroom, I was like, that's fascinating. How does that happen? And he says, this is plant breeding. And so that's how he got into the, you know, whole conversation of what plant breeding is and horticulture and what a cultivar is. You know, I left that lecture that day and called my father and I was like, I think I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go be a plant breeder and I want to work with woody plants because I think it's really cool that someone can take a species from the forest and transform it to be a more charismatic representative of that species that you could put in a garden landscape where someone might actually want to plant it and introduce it into someone's garden so that it would engage people to actually want to learn more about what it is. You know, like they look, someone sees a weeping red leafed thing and they might be like, what is that? I need to learn more about it and use like their plant app to identify it. And then that might actually take them out into the forest to go find it or actually notice that it exists, you know, along the side of the road. Well, that to me is what an arboretum is for, to actually introduce these new species so people can actually see them or you'll see them in a garden center. Which brings us to the second question for you, that the Morton Arboretum has such an important 
role to play for the public. Can you talk about that as far as your reading and your introductions and and the overall context of an arboretum so that our listeners, if they're not familiar with Arboretum, why it's important that we do have Arboretum like Morton and, and your work that you're doing and that Redbud and how it got to where it is today. So, you know, I think a lot of people aren't really aware of what public garden spaces are for, right? Um, I think most people aren't aware of that. And, um, you know, being an arboretum within the public garden world, we're more focused on plants uh, that we consider what's called woody, right? So the trees and all the shrubs as our primary focus. And what I think our role is, um, what, what it was traditionally was, was to house a group of plants that could be studied, you know, in botanical gardens was for medicinal plants, right? And then that, you know, evolved over time when the Morton Arboretum was established, what the intention was, was to collect all these different plants, grow them at the Morton Arboretum, see how they perform in the Chicagoland landscape in our climate here. So then you could inform people of what to grow in the nursery industry or what to grow in their gardens at home or what to grow in the city streets, right? So it's like a demonstration area and trying to diversify what's actually available rather than being limiting. And then, you know, today we still do that. And I think that's a very important role to play. We have this comprehensive collection of plants that can both serve to inform us on what can perform here now. And then also it serves a purpose in providing uh, material for not only, you know, the home gardener or the nursery industry, but also for anybody who's researching plants. So we get plenty of requests for samples to be sent out for genome sequencing today, right? So that's like how our our role has evolved, you know? Um, Now we provide uh, that plant material that researchers need to sequence those genomes. And there's definitely a massive effort that needs to be undertaken to get all of those those angiosperms represented in that work. The other thing that we do is, um, beside from providing that material for researchers to study, is we provide material for plant breeders to work with. So, you know, these are our wild crop relatives, whether it's for grapes. So I've had a request for a grape species from our collection just this year from a grape breeder in California, and they didn't have it that particular you know, specimen represented in the USDA germplasm repository. So I sent them the material so they could have it. And so I think we are also a a resource for germplasm. And we're part of this pretty vast network of germplasm repositories, which are part of the USDA and are located strategically around the country and house a lot of our crops and their, their wild crop relatives. And then also this network of public gardens who do the same thing. And so we kind of all work together to make sure that we have things represented in collections across North America to serve a role in research and breeding. And then, you know, I think lastly, the emerging kind of role that public gardens have taken on is serving as institutions for conservation, right? So conservation efforts, whether that's going out and actually doing the exploration, collecting the plants and distributing it to other institutions to continue to grow or establishing conservation groves for the future so that we can take these species and provide a potential resource for seed for reestablishment. And then we also go out and do um, habitat restoration efforts. So I think the scope of what public gardens and arboreta can do is pretty broad um, as it relates to plants. So that was, I think, the first part, right? <laughs> yeah. It was a big question. It was a big Nicely question. Nicely done. Yeah. <laughs> that was really Nicely good. <laughs> and then the second part I would say would be, uh, you know, the breeding aspect of it has certainly been key focus at the arboretum in addition to conservation. The first research director, the first director of research at Morton was hired in 1968. There was research happening up until then, obviously, but it was more formalized by establishing a director of research. And so that director of research was Dr. George Ware. And Dr. George Ware, at the time, he was already, you know, well-established professor. He already had a career as faculty member down south. And he had a very good understanding of ecology, of dendrology, and also of, you know, plants out in the landscape. And 
what they are exposed to due to his understanding of the ecology and dendrology and what they're capable of tolerating. And so when he arrived in 1968, there had been a massive loss of elms. Millions of trees were being lost. And it was really big news at the time. And so George Ware arrived into Chicagoland as this was happening. Trees were getting cut down all over the place. And he's at the Morton Arboretum. He notices that there is this elm that is healthy. And it's, let's see, I think it was accession in 1926. So when we, we first were established in 1922, so it was one of the first accessions in the, to the collections. And this was in 1968. So it was, you know, around 40 years old. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty well-established tree specimen. And it was green and it had this arching um, habit habit up in the um, canopy, much like an American elm. And he thought, well, that's, what is that? So he looks at the label. It says it's a cedar elm. George is from Oklahoma and taught in Louisiana and has explored Texas. And he's like, that's not a cedar elm. <laughs> the leaves are not right. That was probably an error when we were um, getting a lot of material in, um, in the early 20s. And so... The original source of that seed was the Arnold Arboretum. And so he went over to the Arnold and he actually looked in their own collection and he found the species that this actually was. And it was uh, now Olmus Davidiana, right? So David's elm. And so that was the first elm. Um, it was it was tolerant to Dutch elm, tolerant of Dutch elm disease or resistant to Dutch elm disease. And George recognized that as maybe a Maybe it was due to a co-evolution of the pathogen, which was native to Asia, and the tree species, which was also native to Asia. And so that moment for him, those I guess those um, accumulations of moments, right? Small moments. Um, they that um, is what kind of led him to start the elm improvement program at the Morton Arboretum. And so that was our first introduction accolade elm, our first major Chicago land growth introduction accolade. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a cultivar more in and then trademark name Accolade. And so from there, what George did was he started uh, kind of promoting David Elm or Olmus Davidiana as a potential replacement for American Elm in addition to some other Asian Elm species. And at the time, the nursery industry didn't have any of that. And so I think, you know, at the time, the nursery industry didn't have any of that in production and there wasn't any of it in the American landscape. And today it's in production in North America all across the continent and planted in Chicago on the Riverwalk and planted in Boston, you know, downtown and planted, it, you know, um, up in the Pacific Northwest and in Vegas. So I saw Accolade Elm planted at the Dallas Arboretum, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah. So I feel like that highlights for us what, you know, our collections and Arboretum or public gardens can do is they could provide that resource for the future where you might have something like a pathogen or a pest that comes along that totally devastates a native species that still needs to be replaced in the urban or suburban landscape, right? It still needs something there. So that basically catalyzed the breeding program to become what it is today. And so our broad focus in our new plant development program, uh, which is the Hearthrow Charitable Trust Foundation New Plant Development Program, it, the broad focus is to develop trees and shrubs that are adapted to the growing conditions of urban and suburban environments. That's our broad objective. So then we have, of course, a lot of specific objectives within each crop group, whether it's like disease resistance, or pest resistance or cold hardiness. Thanks for that great overview, Kim. Am I correct that Dr. Ware got an elm named after him? Uh, no, it's not an elm, it's an oak. Oh, I was, <laughs> wasn't even close. Right. And what? tell us a little bit about that oak. So it's Quercus wearii. Okay. And I am so sorry. I don't know the story behind how it was named for George. Okay. <laughs> That's something that I should probably look into. Maybe Guy Sternberg has something to do with that. Well, I'm sure everyone's Googling it as we speak. For our listeners, in case anybody doesn't know who Guy Sternberg is, he's the main authority globally on Oaks. He has that wonderful accolade to himself. I think one of the things I wanted to mention when you were saying that accolade had been had been so successful, I think having a first home run when you are a plant breeder, takes the program into 
the stratosphere. Because once you have that first success that's that successful as, as Accolade was, it just shows people a whole new paradigm that they may have never seen before. Dr. Ware was very lucky in that it worked that way for him because it really catapulted Morton Arboretum into the, the limelight, if you will. And I think that, that that really makes a huge difference as far as funding goes, too, because when people see that you're successful, they're willing to put money into the bank there to, you know, to fund other research. And I think that's really a, a very good tribute to your Arboretum. For sure. Chicago Land Grows is our brand, and I think it's relatively well-known in the nursery industry, right? But I think it's not necessarily like targeted towards that end user, right? So I think we are we're certainly incredibly well-known amongst horticulturists, arboriculturists, and that nursery industry that works with trees. And I think that probably the Accolade Elm and that Chicago Land Grows brand from the nursery industry perspective probably has something to do with that for sure. It's interesting to me, Kim, that 1968, I don't want to call it a more innocent time, but no one was talking about greenhouse gases and climate change. We were just trying to find a replacement for the elm tree. And now fast forward 2023, and basically people in your profession, not to exaggerate or sound too dramatic, but you're, you're basically trying to you know, save our urban forests through accelerated efforts with with plant breeding. And, and, you know, when Eva and I started the podcast three and a half years ago, I didn't know that term assisted migration. Now, all of a sudden, it's, you know, race against time. Oh, what are we going to plant now that our cities are heating up a lot faster than we thought? Right. It's definitely a growing concern. And we do get inquiries on, you know, what what do you suggest that we plant for 75 years from now? <laughs> We're we're laughing, but it's really, it's going to be, you know, what can I plant 75? What about 100 years from now? Like, what is going to grow here? You talk about that time frame, and it seems so, so far off in the distance, and yet it's not. Look what happened in the last 100 years. And I, I did want to go back and say something. We were drawn to climate change early in the 1960s, early 60s by Rachel Carson. And I don't know how many people read the book. I, re- I remember reading her book when I was young. I mean, I was a young kid and because I loved going into bookstores. But again, as you said, how really the rest of the general public wasn't aware of it. Yeah. And the people who were reading in the science world may have seen that touch of the iceberg from her book, but overall, really not. And the idea of being able to move plants around and plan explore I think our plant explorers in the uh, 19th century actually have helped us dramatically today because of all their work back then. It made us realize how important plant hunting is to find the most resilient species for a particular location. And I think that's also another um, tribute to Morton Arboretum and other arboretums around the country that do plant exploration by partnering and bringing species back so that you can plant it in your arboretum and share it with other arboretum around the country to see how it does in your area. And I think those kind of things have actually helped plant breeders also because we've already had these mature plants here that you could already start to work with. So looking at that and hearing what you're saying about looking into 75 years from now, what kind of things are you looking at to really come up with plants that are resilient for the next 75 years, as you were mentioning? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, (laughs) So, you know, thinking about the the plant breeding side and like the climate change and breeding for climate change and um, acknowledging those who came before us and had the forethought to say like, hey, we need to collect a bunch of stuff, (laughs) right? Right, right. I think we, you know, we've, as like a breeding community, I think folks have been working on all of those challenges, those issues, and addressing them not through the lens of climate change, but just through the lens of like, you know, disease and pest resistance and these kind of harsh conditions of urban and suburban environments. It just so happens to coincide with all the needs of climate change, which has worked out pretty well for, I think, all of us, right? right. So it's like when someone says, what are you doing to breed for climate change? It's like, well, you know, what we've been doing, we, we're trying to breed for broad adaptability so that you can reach a broader market, right? 
well, broad adaptability is also broad adaptability to climate change, uh, to like change it, being more plastic, right? We have things that are adapted to those really harsh conditions where like, there's no soil and there's drought and there's flooding that happens in a city. That's also going to be an issue with climate change. So we're in a really great position from that perspective. As far as what we're, you know, focusing now on at the Morton Arboretum, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that have always been made, I think, about the capacity of plants. And I think there are definitely folks out there who have always, you know, been those zone pushers, right? Saying like, well, I don't know. I think we could grow this plant, you know, even colder. <laughs> we just got to figure out a way to do it in a, in a garden. So, you know, you look at the J.C. Ralston Arboretum and everything that J.C. Ralston did to bring plants to the southeast and see like, well, maybe we can grow that in zone seven. Or you look at like Plant Delights Nursery and you see what they've been, do they have done too in the past. And, you know, and I'm from North Carolina. So of course I have that context in my, my background experience. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of assumptions made in a lot of places about, you know, things being more locally adapted. And now what we're seeing is that might not be the best strategy moving forward is looking at local adaptations. And so if you look into an Arboretum collection, what you'll find are those outliers, those, those unexpected things, because there were people who were not constrained by those assumptions when they were doing plant exploration or when they were requiring material to, you know, broaden the taxonomic diversity of their taxonomic collection. Um, they're really just collectors trying to get stuff, right? And so now when we look at our Arboretum collections, we can say we've kept such good records of where things are from and what they are. We can look at them and say like, well, that's odd. That cedar elm from Seguin, Texas has been here since the early 70s. And it survived multiple polar vortex events that have been incredibly detrimental to a lot of well-established specimens that are expected to be more cold-hardy based mm -hmm. on where they're from. And then yet the cedar elm hasn't skipped a beat. There has been no cold damage to it. And so like that's just like one example of you know, what we have at the Arboretum. So we can go into our database and maybe start looking at what are our outliers and using those as breeding material or also maybe, you know, as potential selections for the future. One that we've introduced is uh, called Morning Starburst Maple. It's a very new introduction. That's the trademark name. And it's unique because at the time it was received into our collections as a seed was in the 80s. And it was a, it was a case of a curator needed to collect things to expand the taxonomic diversity of the maple collection. And they said, well, we don't really have Acer circinatum or the vine maple uh, from the Pacific Northwest represented in our maple collection. So, you know, um, what we do is we reach out to a, you know, partner public garden, the UW, University of Washington Botanic Garden, and we say, hey, would you mind sending us some seed of your native maple species? And they do. They collect it, you know, in their natural areas at their public garden, and they send it to us. What ends up happening is, you know, we germinate all our seed in-house, we plant them all at the grounds in different locations, and everything died from the heat and humidity <laughs> except for this one maple. You look at it. So one of the first things that um, I did when I came to the Arboretum, my interview uh, with Chris Bachtel, he took me to this tree. He says, what do you think about this tree? I mean, I was looking, I was like, well, it looks interesting. It looks like it's in the Japanese maple group. And like, all right, do you think it's a vine maple? Because I went to grad school in Oregon State, and that's where I was coming from to do my interview. And I was like, not exactly. You know, the leaves kind of look similar, but they're not exactly it. There's something off about it. And so, you know, it ends up being an interspecific hybrid, chance seed thing, right? So if you look at the UW Botanic Garden and their collection, they have vine maples in their natural areas, but then they also have a collection of Japanese maples. And vine maple is in the same taxonomic group as Japanese maples and Korean maple. And so they can hybridize with each other. Oh, and, that's interesting. Yeah, right? Hmm. And that was wow. actually what I studied for my graduate thesis was maples. So I think what happened is we had a hybridization event between vine maple and Korean maple based on morphology and based on cold hardiness. So this specimen has made, also made it through multiple polar vortexes. And so I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. And it's also survived our summers. 
So um, it had already been cloned and we planted it at multiple locations at the Arboretum. So they were about, I would say, six foot tall branched trees that had been containerized and pot bound in the nursery until we like sheared the roots and then put them in the ground in the fall of 2018. And then 2019, January, we had our worst polar vortex. And we haven't had one that bad since. And of course, we had damage on everything. But these trees that we planted in the ground in the fall of 2018 are totally okay. So, okay, they're cold hardy. Great. We need that. But then we distributed plant material out to the Pacific Northwest, which is we work with the liner producers out there for evaluating a lot of our introductions since they do a lot of the propagation in North America. And they were growing it at Kinsey Turf and Nursery. They were growing it in um, the research and development blocks at J. Frank Schmidt. And they were growing it at Heritage Seedling. So two nurseries in Salem, one in Boring, and um, in different kind of growing, you know, different styles of production. And they experienced the heat dome after our polar vortex. Oh, that's right. Right? Yeah. And so they actually yes. had... So Kinsey Nursery uh, in Salem, they already had that selection planted in the ground in the blocks with, you know, the other Japanese maple types that they have in production. So they had pretty decent sized trees. And then Heritage had liners that were being produced. They had already been field grafted. And so I had different types of, you know, stages of growth in production. And they experienced the heat dome. And then I went there for far west after the heat dome. And they drove me through their fields. And it was fine. Like it was still growing. Wow. You know? Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, we have photos now of like following years in production where you can see other trees. They still survived the heat dome. They just got burnt back a little bit. So they were slightly smaller than the morning starburst selection because it had it, the buds hadn't been killed back. And so I think for me, you know, think looking at that example and then also the polar vortex example, this particular hybrid specimen that was just a chance ceiling is a good tree for the future also because it could potentially survive, you know, any kind of weird, right, extreme weather fluxes. That's really fascinating to hear that information and to know that it has that wide range. And again, the importance of botanic gardens in other locations so that you can actually test and get the feedback that you need for these plants. And boy, I think that's really, really exciting. That's really exciting. Kim, can you walk us through the next step then? So Morton Arboretum has come up with a great tree, Morning Starburst Maple right? What happens next? In other okay. words, in the nursery industry, you hand it off. Who are you handing it off to and how does it come to market and how soon does it come to market? So the first step is we will propagate something, right? If we identify a selection in our collections, we do have an in-house uh, production and propagation department. And so we'll start by seeing if we can propagate it. And then that will give us an opportunity to distribute it. And then once we've figured out how to propagate it, or at least propagated it how we can, it's not commercial level propagation, of course, right? Then we also start talking to nursery people. And so, you know, with the Morning Starburst, it was a matter of saying like, hey, I have this really cool hybrid vine maple. Vine maple is native to the Pacific Northwest, you know, to Oregon licensed propagators. Would you be interested in trying to propagate this? So I'll send them scion wood if they're interested in trying something new out. And then they'll sign an MTA, a material transfer agreement with us. And so that MTA basically secures that intellectual property. So like nobody's introducing it without our permission. And also, so they're not like, you know, doing other stuff with it in the meantime. And so that I think is like the biggest hurdle, right? Getting someone to devote space in their commercial nursery to try something new out for you that is not a guaranteed, you know, product because they're investing their resources now. So, you know, we send that to them, they evaluate it. If they find that um, they can propagate it in a way that's commercially viable for them, then they will let us know and say like, yeah, we're interested in growing this. And so then we take it from there. So like, okay, you're interested in growing it. The next thing we do is, all right, now we have to get clones of this to evaluate this in a commercial production system. And so that's essentially what they do. So J. Frank Schmidt Nursery, we work a lot with them. They're very generous in doing that R&D work. 
And they will plant out a block of lined out clones of a selection for us. And they'll compare it in the field next to something else that it would be in competition with in the market to see if it could actually compete, right? Can you get the numbers? How does it perform? What are the production issues? And then once they've done that, then we can have it distributed to other types of growers to see how it does in different types of growing systems. And tandem, you try to have these plants already cloned and in landscapes and also distributing them into other landscapes. Right. So other public gardens, other people that, you know, maybe write about, you know, plants that evaluate them in their own garden too. So people within the network that you can trust to actually grow something, not release it on your, you know, without your permission and also give you feedback on it. And so you can see how it performs in different, different climates. So Morning Starburst now, I think, is down in the Southeast in a few places. It's definitely, definitely in the Pacific Northwest. It's been in Chicagoland, you know, for a while now. And so it's an ongoing evaluation too. From a, from a financial perspective, does that work out well for the Morton Arboretum? I'm not asking for specifics, but is it a profit center for? No. Oh my. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it does take a while to uh, get things out into the market with woody plants in large enough numbers to recover royalties within that time frame of a patent. Does that make sense? Because a patent is only yeah. 20 years. So what we've traditionally done is trademark our plants. And so that's why you have the Morning Starburst Maple, the cultivars Morton UW, which uh, acknowledges University of Washington in the cultivar term. So we have the trademarks. And so our licensed growers will send us a trade uh, a trademark royalties for the plants that they're licensed to sell. And so they, they sell those plants under that uh, trademark name that they're licensed for. We recover royalties through Chicagoland Grows. Each year, they cut us a check based on what our plant introductions were. The money does not cover the general operating budget you yeah. know, of the plant development program or the salary of the breeder. Right. But it, it does go back into the Arboretum. Gotcha. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand that side, which is so intricate. It's very intricate. And I used to be on that side of it. And... You know, the trademarking and making sure that you have the right nurseries producing it. We actually found somebody producing a plant of ours that wasn't supposed to be producing it. And they were they were fined big time for mm. um, growing something that they were not licensed to grow. So there there are patent police out there, just like there are patent police for fabrics and for all kinds of products out there. Just so people know that, that you can get caught, you can get fined really heavy. Yeah, so that part of it is very intricate. And I think that what you're doing is very commendable because it can change how we view things within our the context of our landscapes and our city settings in our extra hot locations, our, our extreme areas of the country. And we are having more extreme events each and every day. And, and I think that what you're working on is, is critical for our survival for the future. Yeah, Kim. And I also want to say how much you're a great storyteller for every little tree thing that's come up today in terms of, you know, the elms and your, and your new maple introduction. It's interesting just to hear the backstory. And that uh, makes me remember how much I appreciate horticulture, you know, in that fashion that you walk down the street Oh, what kind of elm is that? And then you realize that it, you know, goes back 20, 30 years. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think that that was one of the things that I appreciated about horticulture was that there were all these stories associated with all these plants. Right. And and some are legendary, you know, that the metasequoia and the ginkgo are probably the top two. You know, everyone knows it and tells the And the sad part about it and the sad either? part about it is it's not written about. It's right. talked oh. about, but it's not written about. Most of them are not. Most of them are not. Yeah. It's like the Lagostromia, the crepe myrtle, how that sat in the National Arboretum for so long before the nursery trade saw, oh my gosh, this person's 40 years worth of work is just sitting here doing nothing. <laughs> and people said, how come this has never been released? And they said, well, the government pays us to do the research, but they don't pay us to disperse it. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. That's the joke. That's the joke. They do the research, but they are not paid to disperse it. So, um, 
it's now getting dispersed. And it was, the research was done back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And now it's finally coming into its own with with crepe myrtles. And of course, we, we see that in the market. But it takes a very long time. And a lot of people may not realize that it takes a lifetime sometimes to get one plant out into the market or two plants out into the market. So you have to be very patient. And like yourself as a breeder, you might be old and gray by the time you see something that's out of yours. That's actually people are loving it and saying, wow, I wonder who invented this. And then you're like, it's me. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm right now, one of the first projects that I was really excited about was the Elm breeding program, because in 2018, you know, I will in 2017, I was, I got here in 2016 and I was doing research in our library archive of George Ware's papers, reading through his notes and stuff mm-hmm. and trying to figure out like where things were. And my boss, Chris Bachtel, had taken me out to this uh, breeding population that George had established at a cemetery. And he, you know, wanted to show me these trees. And he's like, I think there's probably something here. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did my research in the archives and I was like, yeah, there probably is because the breeding population that he had developed because he wanted to get red fall color elms, wow. right? And he never wow. got to see that in his lifetime. So he just built this population, had it cloned, had it planted somewhere for the future because it never even flowered in his lifetime. And then you fast forward to 2018 and I'm out there collecting seed because they're finally setting fruit and germinating thousands of seed and then finding, you know, little seed things with red fall color. And that's 2018 and you know, that probably was the early 2000s. <laughs> so. Wow. Sure. Yeah, and there, right. and, there, and there you have it. Like, you know, you may not even live to see what you're trying to produce, but that's why it's important to have really good records and that people can realize that this person did the collecting, this person did the breeding, this person released it to market, or this group of people released it to market. And this is where it is today. So anybody who's listening that's that's in the industry or not in the industry, you kind of get a better picture that this is not something that people do for their ego. They <laughs> do it for the future when they're not here. That's a big thing. And very few people realize that. I think it's important that, you know, when you go to a Lowe's and a Home Depot, that you were seeing things that have taken 100 years to get here or 50 years to get here or 40 years to get here. It didn't happen overnight. It's a process. And I think that is part of the challenge of getting more programs focused on developing new trees for the future, right? Because it is that long-term process and you have to have a long vision and there's not a lot of turn, like there's not a rapid turnover, at least not now the way we currently do things, right? And so, you know, getting folks to actually invest in that, whether it's a university or it's a commercial nursery, you know, in um, business is going to be really challenging. And so you have very, you have lots of shrub breeders (laughs) and a lot of perennial, herbaceous perennial breeders, right? But very few folks who are breeding landscape trees or few programs that are supported to breed landscape trees. And it's more difficult, I think, to get funding for that uh, as a researcher, too. So, yeah, which is which is kind of surprising. It is. And one of the things that we discovered last week, I think it was, we interviewed Star Roses. And they said that there's such a shortage of breeders in the industry that there have to there has to be some kind of way to get young people involved in the breeding process because there's just not going to be enough people to do it. Most of the people who have had long careers in it are retiring and there's nobody to follow in their footsteps. That's scary because we need to have breeding done because of climate change, because of diseases and insects. Yeah, so I hope you're mentoring somebody. Yes. So I have had two interns this year, 2017 through, we have had two interns this year. I think last year, I think I just had one intern, but we do mentor interns. A lot of them come to us, and so that's the thing. A lot of them come to us from environmental science backgrounds, ecology, biology, but we do not get a whole lot of horticulture students applying for the 
plant breeding internship. And it's not a bad thing. It's actually, I feel like a, a po- it can be a positive, right? So I can mentor ecology students, environmental students, and give them a different perspective. Or conservation students, they come, you know, they come in here and they they know a lot about things through that angle or that perspective or that lens. And but they've never learned anything about how does a plant that's out on the street get there, right? And so then they get a new perspective on plants and how they're actually developed for the urban landscape. And then they can take that out and do with it what they want. They can pursue a path in plant breeding or when they become a conservationist, they can have some perspective on how plants are produced and like what the considerations are um, on the front end as far as like propagation and production goes or you know, if they're an environmentalist or, you know, any of those things that they choose to follow, they're always going to have that understanding of where plants come from. And I think that's important. From the breeding side, though, I think I, I think I made me like a little bit more optimistic, but I'm also not having to hire a bunch of breeders. Right? Um, but when I was in school uh, at Oregon State as a grad student, there were a lot of breeding students. Where they end up is variable. Um, you know, a lot of times it has to do with where what people want to move. Um, so I think that maybe is a challenge too. Well, I also think too that breeding is sometimes done in tandem with another profession. Yeah, they're 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 amateur breeders. Um, they're working in in their on their own plot, and they have another profession like Will Radler did with the Knockout Rose. He was working in Wisconsin Botanic Garden. He was doing something else, and. You know, that idea of having a backyard nursery can be appealing to some people because that's what they want to do when they get home from work. That's what they take up as a hobby. I hope our interns do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I hope that hobbies, but it could be an environmentalist who's actually working in the field and see something that they never saw before in the wild that piques their interest and because they had your uh, breeding program, they might say, you know what, this might be something that we should collect seed from. And and there might be the next uh, good urban tree. Absolutely. Our time has kind of cruised through quite quickly, Kim. I wonder if you could just give us a, a short version of where you are collecting. Are you mostly in the United States or have you dropped south of the border or... Where, where are you collecting? So I, I would start with like, you know, the Arboretum. When Matt Lobdell was here, he just left as the curator position uh, last year, uh, last summer. There were collections done in Georgia and Azerbaijan for international trips. And also uh, there was a China trip too in that time frame. So those were the three more recent international trips. Of course, right now, exploring China is not going to happen, but we're doing a renovation of our uh, Asian, our geographic collections in the Morton Arboretum. So right now we have Korea, Japan, and China, and we're going to reinterpret the collection and also merge them into one large temperate Asian plants collection. And, you know, something that we know about that collection as far as provenance goes, we have a lot of China stuff because NACPEC was so prolific in their plant exploration, but we don't have a whole lot from Japan and Korea. And so from that perspective, what we would like to do is kind of maybe pursue more conservation focused germplasm. So in Japan, Acer miyabii um, in Hokkaido is listed by the IUCN Red List. And we do have an Acer miyabii State Street introduction. So we know... That's great. Yeah, it's wonderful, right? And it's a- Yeah, I've got one I can see out the window of my office. Oh, fantastic. And the, the original tree is absolutely stunning. I mean, we know it's broadly adaptable and it can survive our climate, the cold conditions there, as well as being a good urban and suburban tree. And so... You know, the thinking is, you know, that should definitely be conserved. And so we know it'll survive here in a conservation program at the Arboretum. And then maybe even looking at some of their associates, right? So if there are plant associates with them, maybe they have the same, you know, adaptability. So that's one area that we want to explore. The other part of plant exploration has been focused on North American collections for different objectives at the Arboretum. There's the um, oak conservation objectives. So we have Quercus acerifolia, which was collected in the wild uh, by a number of folks. And we now have a seedling conservation grove that has been initiated at the Arboretum. And that one is native to the Wachita Mountains 
which is a really unique mountain range in North America that goes east-west instead of north-south. And it um, spans the border of Oklahoma and Arkansas. And so Quercus acerfolia is native, is, has, there's four, poppy, four areas down there that we have genetics from where it is. And the habitat is a concern because the habitat has been degraded and there's some fragmentation. And so it actually does quite well at the Morton Arboretum. <laughs> um, we're going out there to collect data on that. So that's one part of the focus of North American plants is getting uh, oaks of conservation concern into our collections, as well as, as other plants of conservation concern from North America, like magnolias, right? And then the other part of the North American plant exploration that I was started focusing on as a plant breeder was going out um, and identifying uh, in our database at the Arboretum and the USDA GRIN database, which is the Germplasm Resources Information Network <laughs> um, published by the USDA, and looking at our databases and seeing what are the gaps in species relative to provenance that exist. So you have these broadly distributed species like Quercus coccinea or something, right? Where, you know, everybody assumes like, ah, oh, it's everywhere. <laughs> you know, we have it in production. We have it, it's in the forest, no big deal. But what we've seen with broadly distributed species in North America, like the green ash is when something comes along that's introduced and wipes it out, we no longer have it anymore. And so what we're starting to do is target broadly distributed species to fill in provenance gaps. And then also we're um, looking at areas like um, one collection trip we did was in 2019 in the Blue Ridge Mountains. We went down there uh, kind of around the Asheville area because not only do they have this really incredible species diversity due to their uh, geological diversity, and they also have this really incredible influx of humans <laughs> happening. Right? Yeah, yes, they do. <laughs> and so there's all this development going on and there's all this habitat fragmentation that can happen and hydrological changes that can happen in the environment. And so there is a threat in addition to climate change uh, in this region of our country. And so the thinking is we go down there and we collect provenance representation of species in that area and try to grow them at the Arboretum as well as distribute that to other places like the USDA. So the USDA funded that. And so now we've moved on um, to Devil's Lake, Wisconsin, State Park, Wisconsin. And so we're trying to target these North American native forests that have species diversity of woody plants that aren't necessarily threatened yet, but they could be threatened, right? based on human activity and climate change. Right. I guess humans are the ultimate invasive species. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, are we invasive? <laughs> <laughs> We're very prolific. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> and we figured out how to stay alive longer, so. <laughs> right. Hey, uh, I was just going to ask Kim what her favorite tree was. Yeah, that's a really difficult question. <laughs> I know it, asking someone like Kim, it's painful for me to phrase the question, but we need to know. Let's see, what is my favorite tree right now? <laughs> right That's now. exactly how we want you to do it. <laughs> or maybe one that you had as a child, you know, growing up, maybe, maybe one of those. Oh, yeah. So let's see. I would say, um, you know, I've grown a great appreciation for the Kentucky coffee tree since I've moved here specifically. It is incredibly hardy, right? Because it is the first thing to go dormant and the last thing to wake up. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and then it's got this tropical look to it. It's so ancient, you know? Yeah. And that it's all these leaves. And then I also think it's a really fascinating species to study because, you know, of course, you've got the diaceae, the female and male stuff, which there are researchers studying, like how is that determined genetically, sex determination. But then also the other thing that I think is fascinating about it that I wish somebody would study is Kentucky coffee trees. You know, we know that their seed dispersal agent is extinct, right? Um, and we, uh, I'm sorry, what is? The, uh, the animal that used to eat and disperse their seed, oh. right? And in order for their seed, uh, so for the seeds to be dispersed, they would have to be digested by a large animal. And then those seeds would have to go through the digestive enzymes and then released into some organic matter. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and then they could germinate in the proper conditions. So today what we have to do is we have to scarify the seed coat and we use sulfuric acid to, you know, 
replicate the environments of a stomach, I guess. <laughs> and um, we germinate them relatively easily by damaging the seed coat. But how do they reproduce and disperse their genetics in nature now that they don't have a seed dispersal agent? Well, you know, one thing that you could maybe observe is that they do, when their roots are disturbed, they will send up new plants from those roots. So they will grow new trees from themselves and they will colonize an area clonally, which is something I learned at the Arboretum. We have a population of that growing on one of our private lakes on site, Arbor Lake. And then we also have in our nursery, Skinny Latte Kentucky Coffee Tree planted in a nursery block that we trenched. And when we trenched it, all of these trees started popping up from their roots, right? And they don't just stop there. They were able to go under the service, the, the lime, crushed limestone, decomposed limestone service road to the other block and sprout up on that other side. The reason why they're not a problem, I've noticed in the tree plantings, either they're in a tree pit or they're in a grassy lawn that gets mown. So it's not an issue, right? So what I want to know is how much genetic diversity actually exists in Kentucky coffee tree out there and how large are the clonal populations that do exist? Where are they? Is it like the quaking Aspen, you know? Yeah. Is there a lot of genetic diversity out there? Or are there a bunch of clonal colonies out there of Kentucky coffee tree? Or like plaque gum, something right. like gum too. Uh, you know, we, we had them on campus, uh, the female. The seedlings pop up very easily after a winter hanging on the tree in the pods. Okay. But again, they're going to be dropped right underneath the tree that, that grew them. So they don't get dispersed, as you're mentioning, unless it gets caught in maybe an animal's paw and they track it a little bit. I know my little wolf hybrid used to do that, get seeds in his paws and track oak seeds that way. But yeah, you're right. Uh, I think that that kind of research needs to be done and maybe maybe you'll be the one to discover it. I want a grad student to go out there and do it. <laughs> Someone who's listening right now. <laughs> okay, she's hiring. Let's put it that way. She's looking. Someone who's out there right now, go go out there and explore Kentucky coffee tree um, to see if they're clonally colonizing areas. <laughs> that's great. Well, that's a great choice. I also have been fond of them over the years because they they take their time growing. It's like, don't push me. Right. I'll grow at my own right. slow rate. I just love the big leaves and then they leave behind the rachis yeah. um, as, as an ID feature because I teach woody plant ID. So I'm I'm always like, oh, look how big this leaf is. And students are like, what? How big is that leaf? Oh, it's three feet long by three right. feet long. <laughs> I teach that one in a winter tree ID at the Arboretum. We have like an adult education program for that. Yes. And it's a three out, three or four hour class. We walk around in the winter. And um, Kentucky coffee tree is great because you have those rachis that are on the ground yeah. still or still kind of persisting on the tree. And then you have this really funky habit because of the lack of that terminal bud. Right. They look like a little thing, like a little scissor or finger. Right. And then it just gives it like really interesting gnarliness in the land, like this really cool silhouette in the landscape. And yeah. so once I point that out to students who are not, you know, horticulturists, they're just, you know, general, you know, general public folks who are just really interested in plants. And there's just like, oh, yeah, that bud location actually makes a difference on a tree. So an intriguing garden. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really fun. Well, it was really great having you on our podcast. And we wish you the very best in your research and your continued exuberance for our, our breeding programs around the country. It's great. It's awesome. And of course, we love Mart Morton Arboretum. Special place in my heart after I visited for the first time in 2003 and I was just blown away. Oh, well, yeah. Well, you'll have to come back again because I'm sure things have changed a little bit. Yeah, I've been back a couple times. Okay. Yeah, and it has. Yeah, it's okay. gorgeous. It's really amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Good luck with everything. Thank you, Hal. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.
Thank <laughs> you. 